In our text today, we will see how quickly David forgets his own principles and character. In chapter 24, uh, last week, Michael did a wonderful job explaining to us David refused to take revenge into his own hands. He appealed to God for vindication. And in chapter 25, the one that we're studying today, the theme of vengeance comes up again. But David's response is everything but not vengeful. Nabal, this guy that we're going to be introduced here in a little bit, insults David, prompting David to seek vengeance against him. Chapter 24 ends with David being vindicated as Saul, even Saul, his enemy, acknowledged David's innocence, pronounced a blessing upon him, and assured him that he would someday be the king of Israel. Now, he didn't invite him back to court, but they went their separate ways. And as we move to chapter 25, Saul remains in the backstage, so we're not going to be reading about Saul today. Um, as the narrator focuses on Dave's deal, David's dealings with the wealthy but foolish Nabal and his wife Abigail. Wise Abigail intervenes and very diplomatically warns David that such a deed will be unworthy of Israel's future king. We all need reminders. I hope that today's text will encourage and challenge your consistency in living in a way that is pleasing to God. At times we can be so resolute in certain principles, but at a different circumstance we tend to shift where we stand. So that's what we're going to see today. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. It, it, it is a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole, well, reading chunks. Um, so starting on verse 1 of uh, chapter 25, 1 Samuel. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, there was a man in my Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite. That David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young man, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have we missed anything 
all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we have come on a festive day. Please, give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited, but Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat and I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I did not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. And David said to his men, Each one of you gird his sword. So each man girded his own sword, and David also girded his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Let's pray. Gracious Father, um, what tremendous lessons uh, your word has to teach us through this story. Lord, as we look at these characters that are so uh, distant from us, we're separated by 3,000 years of history, and yet we see the human nature being revealed. I pray, Lord, that your glory will be revealed even more in this text as we see that you restrain your people in your providence. Lord, I pray that you would bless our hearts and help us to focus and to learn what you have to teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I titled our sermon today, and you have the notes there um, at the back of the table if you haven't gotten them. Um, God's restraining providence. God's restraining providence. And we will see three aspects of these restraining providence of God. The first that we will see is our need for this providence, the need for this restraining providence. That is 1 through 13, the verses that we just read, and then uh, verses um, 14 through 39, um, you will see the uh, instruments of God's restraining providence, the instruments, the people that he uses. And then lastly, the last verses, we will see the outcome of God's special intervention. How he sovereignly orchestrates all these situations. Right? So to begin with, let's start with the need for God's restraining providence. Um, starting on verse 1, we read that Samuel died. The death of God's spoken man appears to seal Samuel's prophetic word and the destiny of Saul and David. Indeed, the death of Saul, Samuel, the first major character to appear in the book, does not indicate a good outcome for the second major character to appear in the book. So the next person to die will be um, Saul. 
If literary order is preserved, it is now Saul's turn to die and leave the stage. Yet, from the Davidic perspective, Samuel's death adds tension to this story. Because David has lost his greatest supporter and is on, is on his own, as it were. He doesn't have a prophet anymore with him. After the constant persecution of David by Saul, a biblical Tom and Jerry saga, as we would see, we have a break in our narrative and new characters are introduced. And it is always interesting to meet these new characters. Our writer quickly introduces us to two of them, but not first by name, at least not for the man. His home, he starts in verse 2, is in Maon. His work is in Carmel, sites in the deep south of Judah, roughly eight miles from south, south of Hebron. Now, this is kind of the area where the wilderness of Paran is, where uh, David is. Remember that the people wandered there for 40 years? So it's a very arid terrain um, that during the springtime, you know, you have the um, grass coming, growing, and then the, the sheep go there. Uh, for that time. So um, that's, that's the region where they're at. And this man, he's prominent and wealthy. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Uh, back then, the amount of your riches wasn't counted on how much you had in your bank account. It was what you possessed. So currently, he is holding a profitable and festive, but especially profitable, sheep-shearing time in Carmel. Only now, then, we are introduced to him by name. See, the author is describing all his riches and everything that he has, and then finally, his name. This commentator is right when he says, and I quote, This way of introducing Nabal is precisely on target, because Nabal's possession precede his own person. His life is determined by his property. Nabal lives to defend his property, and he dies in an orgy, enjoying his property, only after being told of his riches that we are told his name. End quote. So were the Lord to describe you, what would come first? Nabal was a member of the Calebite clan, an esteemed family in Judah. Remember Caleb in the times of Joshua? Uh, Caleb was part of the tribe of Judah. So was David. So they were relatives. They were from the same clan. They were from the same family. Um, in fact, actually, the, um, and this, is, this was interesting. I was reading about it that David's hometown, Bethlehem, was founded by Calebites. So people from this tribe started the city of Bethlehem, where David is from. So he was certainly uh, one of David's kinsmen. However, he was not an honorable man. This fact doesn't encourage our hopes. For Nabal, his name means fool. I don't know how parents, you know, maybe it was a nickname for this guy because, hey, fool, come here. 
it wouldn't make any sense to me. Maybe it, it was a nickname because of his attitude. Uh, but that's how he was known for. Nabal, he was a fool. Perhaps there is some variety among the fool, but Nabal is, in a low-level American vernacular, a thick-headed skull. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what he is. Biblically, however, he's worse. Isaiah 32, verse 6, describes a fool. How about we turn there? Isaiah 32, verse 6. There is that word Nabal, or Naval, does not merely lack of manners. He is a spiritual and moral and a social disaster. All of these at once. So Isaiah 32, verse 6 This is how the Lord describes the fool and the bows of this world. For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart inclines toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness, to speak error against the Lord, and to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, and to withhold drink from the thirsty. That's a fool. They are a spiritual, moral, and social disaster, whatever they go. In the same breath that our writer mentions Nabal by his name, he also mentions his wife's name, Abigail. The couple is a study in contrast. The writer himself puts it succinctly in verse 3, at the end of verse 3 there, Abigail was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. Uh, the NIV translate that he was uh, harsh and evil as a gruff man. He was a gruff man, or he was mean. But Nabal's wife, um, Abigail, her name actually means, my father is joy. It's a beautiful name. One who was both good of understanding and beautiful in appearance and form. She was intelligent and beautiful. The root word used here to express intelligent is the same one used previously to describe David in chapter 18, verse 5. Remember when David is being introduced to Saul? What is the word that describes him? That's that word there, intelligent. He is a smart kid. He's, he's wise. So 18, verse 5, um, says that David went out whenever Saul um, sent him and prospered. And, um, and it was pleasing in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. He's being pleasing. Uh, he, it shows that he was a man of understanding. Verse 30 uh, from chapter 18. It says, And then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened and as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So David was characterized by being this wise man who knew what to do in the proper time he knew exactly what to do, what the circumstance demanded him to do. And so he is compared now to um, Abigail. 
So don't think our writer is being uncharitable here toward Nabal. He's simply telling the truth. Nabal's servant, as we're going to read later, and his enemy, um, David, and even his wife, all agree that the narrator has correctly assessed Nabal. In fact, Nabal's own words vindicate the writer's estimate. As the incident opened, he had his animals moved about a mile north of Mayon to Carmel, and there he was shearing his sheep, a process that might have been carried out twice annually, so in the spring and in the early fall. So it could have been at this time of the year that this was happening there in Israel. From his desert hideout, David heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. On verse 4, we read that. During a recent, recently completed stay in the desert of Maon, David, and you remember this from chapter 23, that's where David was staying for a while, David had used his man to act as a security force for his relatives, servants, and animal. He was protecting their animals, Nabal's animals. During that time, you remember, and you will see later in the next chapter or so, that there were these uh, raids, um, um, these really thugs that would come and steal and, and destroy. So it, it was a dangerous place to be. Now, during the present festive time of taking profit from the animals that David and his men protected, David sent 10 young men, you know, with, with help. And this is, you know, that it's kind of hard for us to, to think in its terms. Uh, we live in a society that is so individualistic. We don't think in terms of community. Um, but it, back then, people were there for each other. You know, you, you were hospitable. You would welcome strangers. You would feed them. You, will, you would give them water. That's how people treated each other. They cared for each other's needs. You remember that um, saw, uh, Moses' father-in-law comes in and, and welcomes him into his family because he protected his sheep and he protected his daughters from being attacked. So that was the culture. People were in each other's business. They cared for each other. Then this statement um, that David brings here um, to his man included the pronouncement of a blessing on Nabal and his servants, a review of the history of the relationship between David's group and Nabal's group, and a request for a due compensation. This is how I, we treated you. This is the things that we've done for you. First, David instructed his men to extend the blessing to Nabal and his household, wishing the man a long life and good health. It's kind of ironic that Nabal would be will be denied both, both health and a, a long life because of his mistreatment of the one who sent him the blessing. Second, David's men were to remind and inform Nabal that during the time they protected the wealthy man's servants and flocks. David's forces did not mistreat them. We read in verse 7, nothing of theirs was missing. 
as we move to verse 9 here, Nabal responded to this message and delivered in David's name in a manner that was consistent with his description, a gruff and mean person. Rather than supporting David, arguably the most famous or infamous member of his tribe at this time, Nabal rebuffed him. I mean, it was not like David was not known. Everybody knew him. He was well known, especially in the territory of Judah. He rejected the significance of the son of Jesse. He's talking like Saul, trying to uh, derise David. It implied that David and his troops were nothing more than a band of rogue slaves who had broken away from their masters. Nabal implied that David and his men were individuals who had abandoned those charged in their care, and as such felt no obligation to take, and pay attention to this, he did not want to give them bread and water and the meat. He had set aside for his own slaves and to give it to men coming from who knows where. I mean, I don't even know where he came from. Seriously? He's from your tribe. He's from Bethlehem, <laughs> from the city that he, he, you, know, you guys started. So I, I want you to note here in Nabal's response in verse 11. Let's turn to verse 11 there. How, just look at how self-centered he is. How it focused so much on I, my Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat and I, that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know why? Very self-centered. It's a clear indication that the writer is emphasizing the wealthiest man, wealthiest man, sinful self-centeredness in this affair. When David's men then turned around and went back to Paran, all the delegation of the ten brought to David were the contemptuous words of Nabal had spoken. David's response was instant and heated. Put on your swords. We're going to go after them. Mustering two-thirds of his troops, David led them to get revenge on Nabal. There's only one way as conventional wisdom has it, to deal with such obnoxious muleheads. In one word, sword. That was the solution that David found. The word sword there is repeated three times in verse 13. As we read, David said to his men, Each one of you gird his own sword. So each man girded their own sword, and David also girded his own sword. This problem could be handled very quickly. And we're apt to think that Nabal now has a problem. But of course, we are wrong. David has the problem. He has just now created it, and he does not yet know it. By withholding due payments for his services, Nabal had violated the, tor- the Torah. So here's, here's the instruction. Uh, we've, I've been talking about the um, historical context and how people lived back then, and how they were generous and, and uh, giving to others. But it was also part of God's law. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24, 
Deuteronomy 24, and we're looking at verse 14 and, and 15. We read here God's instruction for his people. It says, You shall not oppress the hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. So Nabal was a stingy, gruff man. Nevertheless, the Torah reserved for the Lord alone the right to avenge wrong in this case. So David is not correct in his response either. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take revenge nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That was the Lord's instructions to David. And he took that so seriously with Saul, right? I'm not going to put my hands on the Lord's anointed. And all of a sudden here, sword, when I kill them. So that, here we see the need for God's intervention. If nothing happens, David is bound to kill people. So that takes us to our next um, point here, the instruments of God's restraining providence. The instruments of God's restraining providence. So let's go then to verses um, 14. This is the larger section. This is the, kind of the core of our text, really. We read here, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. And yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything along as we went about with them while we were in the fields. I just want you to pay attention to everything that David said he did actually is matching by the, the servants of Nabal, word by word. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, verse 16. And all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and, and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and, give, and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. I mean, I'm already hungry here just reading this. <laughs> she said to her young man, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal, and it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her, so she met them. 
Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all these men has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I live, I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. And we have the intervention. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, O my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you, and there's a key word there, the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to your young man who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because for my Lord an in, um, make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in all your days. Now, should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life and then the life of my Lord shall be bound in a bundle of living with the Lord your God, but he lives of your but the lives of, his, of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does, does for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints your ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause or by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. This is one of the longest um, dialogues here uh, in the scripture. Um, words by woman are not very common in the scripture, but then you have this wise woman just speaking wisdom. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me from this, um, kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God Israel live, of God of Israel lives, who has restrained me again, he's repeating that word, from harming you unless you had come quickly and met me surely. There would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. 
So David received from her hand what she had brought to him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. All right, we'll continue reading here in a little bit. But providence, providence, I, I am referring here to the mysterious and interesting way that God provides for his servants. You know, God can act in miraculous ways by defying the, nat- the laws of nature, the law of gravity. He can walk on water. That's a miracle. Um, he can transform water into wine to provide for his people, right? But providence, God is not going to act miraculously. He's going to use human instruments to accomplish his will. So that's why I have titled providence, God's restraining providence. The dominant note of this chapter is that Yahweh, in his timely providence, restrained his chosen king from his own impulsive folly and wrong. Four times the story confesses Yahweh's restraining action. We read in verse 26, verse 33, 34, and at the end there, verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleased the cause, pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and kept and has kept back his servant from evil. So four times there is a, uh, the author is trying to bring it to us. It is the Lord who intervened in his providence to restrain David to do evil. So once was in Abigail's council, she says that the Lord has restrained him, and three times in David's gratitude toward her. David, in his post-Abigail time, had the right hermeneutic, the right interpretation of God. Yahweh sends you to this this very day to meet me. Now, back to our story, every reader of verse 13 knows that 400 men with swords intend to do, right? We don't need to be wondering what they're going to do with those swords. David had probably spoken, verses 21 and 22 that we read later, at this time in verse 13. It is right translating that David had said, so previously he told his servants these things. But the writer reports them as Abigail is about to meet David in order to stress what high stakes are involved in Abigail's mission. If she fails, every male in Nabal's household will be destroyed. Fortunately, a stupid Nabal had a perceptive servant and a resourceful wife. The servant told Abigail how Nabal had vented his grumpiness on David's servant, verse 14, and how good David and his man had been to Nabal's shepherd, verse 15 and 16, and how vicious they would surely be toward uh, Nabal's household. And finally, why he was telling all of this to Nabal's wife rather than to Nabal. Why was that? Why didn't he go and talk to Nabal? Have you thought about it? Well, the text responds. The end there, the verse 17, he is such a worthless fella. He is a brute that no one can say a word to him. Nobody can reason with this guy. 
But Abigail could do smart things in a hurry. She thought, bread, wine, sheep, grain, raisins. I'm going to get all this together. She's our Sherry Macmillan, you know, bringing the food, <laughs> bringing the goods. That's Abigail. She knows exactly when to bring the good stuff. There she goes. But she didn't tell Nabal because she agreed with the servant's estimate of her own husband. He is a fool. In 1 Samuel 24, 8, David prostrates himself to show honor to Saul. Remember in the cave when David cuts the piece of the, the vest and then he bows himself and talks to Saul. He shows reverence. Here we see Abigail doing the same thing. She's bowing down to show honor to David. After this elaborate courtesy, Abigail asks to assume the guilt, though she herself had known nothing of David's emissaries and their request. She first strikes the note with Yahweh's restraining providence in her opening argument in verse 26. In a most solemn statement introduced by an oath, so verse 26, let's read that again. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and the word there, Lord, is Yahweh, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. So apparently Abigail foresaw that Nabal in some way would reach his appropriate end. But clearly she interpreted her intercepting David as Yahweh's action. Yahweh had held David back from hasty bloodshed and vengeance. And this is so important. This is so important here because it meant that this situation would not, never prove and we read here in verse 31, a cause of grief or a troubled heart for my Lord. Or, or literally in the original, a staggering or a stumbling block for his heart. That is, he would keep his stability by not being haunted by remorse of conscience. Because he had bloodied his hand out of personal resentment. So Abigail wisely advises him, do not let your conscience be troubled by doing evil. David receives more than a merciful restraint of God's providence in this episode. For then he processed, um, he, he processed to hear, um, he hears fresh assurance of Yahweh's promise. In verse 28 and 29, she starts encouraging him. Abigail is both a rain upon David's folly and a goad to his faith. Abigail speaks as a semi-prophetess, knowing about Yahweh's promise to David and affirming that David will certainly enjoy its fulfillment. There is no doubt, she says, verse 28, Yahweh will certainly make for my Lord a sure house. One day... You won't be a fugitive anymore, David. 
and he will preserve David through all the dangers. Should anyone rise up, verse 29, to pursue you and seek your life and then your life of my Lord and shall be bound in a bundle of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. They'll be destroyed. Saul's tricks will never touch one in the Lord's care. Hence, Abigail confidently speaks of the time when Yahweh will have fulfilled what he promised to David, verse 13-31. Abigail joins those who know and attest that David will be king as Yahweh promised. Remember that Jonathan um, comes later, chapter 23, and he said, David, you will be in the throne. I know that this is tough right now, but God will fulfill his promise to you. And then later, last week, we saw, even Saul, Saul admitted it. David, you will be on the throne. And now her confident word was likely needed to him. After, I mean, just imagine, after 10 years of being a fugitive, it is very likely that David really needed Abigail's word of encouragement. This was the plus of God's providence here. Not only intercepted, but she encouraged David. And typically, he did so with a word of promise. Verse 33 says that she had good judgment. The word there in Hebrew actually refers to discernment. She's, she was able to assess the situation, to look at it objectively, and see, boy, this is, this is a, a conundrum. This is a problem here, and I need to do something about it. Why she did that? Because she had discernment. She was a wise woman. Such discernment is a characteristic of the wise. Um, on contrast with that, we're not going to read that, but Proverbs 11:22 talks about of a woman, beautiful appearance, and she's very attractive, but she is unwise. And it, it compares as having a, a piece of jewelry on the snout of a pig. Just weird picture, ugly, not, not pretty. Snout of a pig is very gross. <laughs> a beautiful woman's attractiveness is negated in this quality if this quality is absent. But the woman who is wise, she is revered. Abigail is both wise and beautiful. David confesses that Yahweh through Abigail, verse 34, here we read, that has kept him from tragic wrong. He agrees with her. Abigail's intervention kept David from walking Saul's sandals. It kept him from turning Nabal's caramel into another knob. Remember in chapter 22 where Saul went on this rant and, and killed 85 priests of the Lord and, their, and his families? The Lord prevented David from doing the same thing. The rejected king may practice sheer butchery but that's not the way for the chosen king. Yet the chosen one wanted his bloodshed and would have obtained it had Yahweh not sent him a deliverer in skirts. So through Abigail, the Lord saves David from the danger different from that in the cave with Saul. 
the Lord didn't do anything um, in the cave. David, in his own initiative, his own conscience, he thought, I'm not going to avenge myself. That's not God's will for me. Now, there's instructions for us here from God's providence. Chapter 25 must be seen in its larger context alongside with chapter 24. Anyone reading the narrative straight through should note the contrast. In chapter 24, David is his restrainer. He will not harm Saul himself and permit his men to do so. But in chapter 25, David must be restrained. He is bent on spilling Nabal's blood and that of his men because Nabal's affront. He refuses to harm the anointed king, but is most than willing to liquidate a private Israelite. The people that he was going to rule over. He sees clearly that he must not take personal revenge against the Lord's anointed in chapter 24, but does not make the same connection when it comes to Abigail's husband. Then that's why Abigail must instruct David here. To slaughter Nabal and his household would be shedding blood without cause. In fact, Abigail's words in verse 30 and 31 suggest that David's vendetta would be worth, would be both wrong and foolish against both precept and procedure. Yahweh, she assures him, will certainly bring David to the kingship, but he must leave that matter in God's hand and he must not allow either a murderous Saul or an obnoxious Nabal to throw him off course. He must not mar God's work with his own folly. David must extend the restraint he showed to Saul to Nabal as well. This is the writer's point. In chapter 24, therefore, David saw clearly what he must or rather must not do. In chapter 25, he does not see that at all. He does not make the connection between the situations with Saul and Abel. He does not see the wideness of God's wisdom. Such failure is not unique to David, is it? Among all the Lord's servant, have we not all been caught on the same net? Can we not recall times in which we saw God's way quite clearly in some predicament, but missed it completely in a fresh situation when the same principles could be applied. There was no wisdom transfer here for David. David was blind when it came to thinking through a new situation in a consistent manner. Nor is this error unique to Yahweh's king's designate. We often have our blinders on. Things that cloud our understanding. We see clearly how we must be obedient in some problem, but change the time or the people involved or the circumstances or the background, and we simply do not see a connection with how we should act. We don't see how the wisdom of the former situation applies to the latter one. How we can quickly advocate patience with our unbelieving classmates, but becoming patient with our parents when we get home. How can we give grace all day long 
to our coworkers or our bosses. Or just be gracious. They don't know the Lord. And you get home and you are ill-mannered with your spouse. How multifaceted Christian wisdom must be. How often our gracious God must stoop down to show us our inconsistency. How we need the instruction of God's providence. Abigail's mission is successful. We follow her home where she finds Nabal too drunk to hear any sense. Let's read chapter um, verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So Abigail tells him these things, apparently how he and his men had narrowly escaped distinction and how she had averted it. Ironically, Abigail was Nabal's deliverer too. She didn't just save his property and his man, he also saved her own husband. Now, who knows, was it because of a sudden suffering? Um, what we're thinking about here, his, I don't know, it looks like a heart attack that he had. Was it because of a sudden sombering fear over such a narrow escape from David's sword? Was that because he was afraid, boy, I am in trouble? Was it because of a greedy stroke that resented Abigail's too generous bribe? In any case, right there at the breakfast table, or whenever that was, his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. But the doing of it all, we read, was Yahweh. Who was behind all of that? About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The brevity of verse 38 is probably deliberate here. As if it to say, David, note the simplicity. Note the magisterial ease with which God cares for this matter. How unnecessary is all your hassle. The text then teaches us how Yahweh rescues his servants from their own instupidity and how he restrains them from executing their sinful purposes and how sometimes he graciously and firmly intercepts us on the road of folly. How many times we had wise friends reminding us of God's word In the text, of course, Yahweh does this for his anointed king, but God is not bound up to the past tense. His mercy is not confined to this special event, to these special servants like David. His vigilance over his erring people is not restricted to the year 1020 BC when this happened. What loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness He sends wise people in our lowest moments. 
and we, have wit- we all witness that. We then need to be humble and embrace God's providential restraining. Proverbs instruct many, many times about the importance of us heeding to counsel. So I, I listed a few here, and, and maybe we're not going to have time to uh, open there, but I'll just read it for you here. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right on his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. And finally, Proverbs 13, 10 says, through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. God sends us wise people to counsel us and to encourage us and to redirect our foolishness. Oh, how independent we are in some important life events. Oh, how, what if we were to listen to our fr- faithful friend's exhortation? Man, that you would listen to the advice of your wife more often. Women, that you would respect and support your husband, good counsel. I appreciate how Pastor Ralph Davis puts it, what mercy sends frustration to our purposes. What a mercy that God does not give us what we want. What kindness builds hindrances in our path. It is important that like David, we respond rightly to such episodes of God's restraining providence. We could hardly do better than to worship with David's own word, In verse 39, blessed be the Lord who has held back his servant from evil. End of quote. And there's one more lesson here for us. The Lord frequently orders his providential care through human instruments. And in 1 Samuel 25 is a textbook on these instruments here. There's no doubt that Abigail is the primary servant in arresting David from his impetuous disaster. David acknowledged that, that Abigail was the one that came and intervened. But I, I want to draw your attention, and I don't want to make a, a, a big deal out of this because the text doesn't do it. But I would say there is another human instrument here in this narrative. Remember the servant that told Abigail, that observed the situation and went and saw if he didn't, if he didn't make that, if he didn't took the step to talk to her, they will all be dead. So I do not want to emphasize what something that the text does not stress, but though the writer does not ring the bells here in verses 14 to 17, any reader looking back over the whole narrative can realize at once how crucial this servant speech is. In retrospect, everything depends on his having spoken to Abigail. Abigail's intervention depends on the servant's information, and he's a minor character of major significance. His role is small but essential. We must guard our responses to such narratives. We must not seek more recognition for the nameless servant here, but we must rather marvel at and adore the God who is in in his kindness and wisdom, leaves no detail unintended in his work of deliverance of his people. It It should draw us to praise God that he is the one that intervenes. 
Yes, we're thankful for our faithful friends. Yes, we're thankful for our spouses and parents that instruct us. But God is the one that is at work. God's chosen servant should embrace the wise advice that he provides. As even Solomon later acknowledges, God's chosen servants need wisdom. I think it's beautiful in, in um, First Kings chapter 3, Solomon asked, Lord, I, I want to be wise. I, the Lord said, I can give you anything. Ask me, and I'll give it to you. And he said, I want to be wise. But attempts of self-vindication, even when one has seemingly just cause, can compromise one's integrity and prove to be an antithesis to the faith in God. Violent retaliation for perceived wrongs is rarely, if ever, a wise response for the wisdom that comes from God that promotes peace and not strife. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 14, 29. Now, to conclude here, we will read the last verses in, the, in our chapter. It says, When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal in his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail and take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail and Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. She arose and, and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David had also taken Ahino of Jezreel, and they both became wives. Now Saul had given Michael, remember Michael was his first wife, uh, daughter of Saul. So he gave his wife to another man, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was in, from Galin. Now, um, I just want to make a, a side comment here. The Bible doesn't endorse polygamy. And having multiple wives, um, that, that was not the Lord intended. Every time you, you look at it, you read, you read the stories in Genesis of, of poly, polygamy. It's just a mess. And so the Lord is not endorsing this action. David could have allowed another man to marry Abigail, maybe choosing someone, a close relative, so remember from Deuteronomy 25.5, the king's men redeemer, right? Once the, the husband died, then you have to marry someone closer. And so we saw that in Ruth, where we have uh, Boaz that marries Ruth. So maybe David is taking on the role of a kinsman redeemer uh, by marrying her. When David's servants presented his proposal to Abigail, she responded in a humble agreement. I mean, her response is just 
amazing. She bowed down her face to the ground before David's men. Abigail's manner of giving a favorable spoken response typified proper Eastern humility. Though David asked her to become his wife, she did not offer herself to be that. You know, I just want to be like one of your servants. I just want to be there for you to serve you. Without delay, Abigail goes and prepares and she goes with her servants. What we learn from this, in conclusion, the believer must embrace divine wisdom, particularly when tempted to pursue self-vindication. I want to close here with a story that is probably very known to most of you is a story of Corey Timboom that she lived in from 1892 to 1983. Long life for the Lord during the World War II. Corey had suffered with a tremendous need for for vengeance. After Corey was released from prison following the war, she felt the need to write a letter to the man that had revealed her family's rescue operations to the Germans. She writes about that. She says, I was free and knew that as I know now, it was my chance to take to the world God's message of the victory of Jesus Christ in the midst of the deepest evil of man. She wrote a letter to her betrayer, and this is what she says. Today, I heard that most probably you were the one who betrayed me. I went through 10 months of concentration camp. My father died after nine days of imprisonment. My sister died in prison too. The harm you planned was turned into good for me by God. I came nearer to him. I have forgiven you everything. God will also forgive you everything if you ask him. He loves you, and he himself sent his son to earth to reconcile your sins, which meant to suffer the punishment for you and me. You and your part have given an answer to this. Never doubt the Lord Jesus' love. He's standing with his arms spread out to receive you, and I hope that the path which you will now take may work for your eternal salvation. Corey Timbrough. All that we would have this kind of response and not vindicate our own plights. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your words, for the examples that you have given us. Lord, for those in our lives that have been good counselors, that have been good friends, to point to us the foolishness of our ways. Oh God, as we go, this week, may we value them, may we thank them, and may we be an encouragement and be the Abigails to others, to be an encouragement, to be of correction to one another. Pray that you would bless uh, the rest of our week to be a time of worship, a continual time of worship towards you. We praise you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.